Welcome to the Better Than Expected podcast, a podcast about marriage, family, and special needs with your hosts, Ryan Carroll and Natalie Carroll. Today we come to you a couple weeks after World Down Syndrome Day, which is March March 21st, yeah. if I can get the words out, uh, 2018. It's March 21st every year uh, because that symbolizes the 21st chrom- the third 21st chromosome that all children with Down syndrome have to some capacity. So today what we want to talk about is some myths about Down syndrome, what Down syndrome actually is, and what you can expect out of children with Down syndrome, which, spoiler alert, it's very wide range of abilities. So let's get down into it. I first want to talk a little bit about what Down syndrome is. Um, I'm going to go on a little bit of a political tangent here and just say Down syndrome cannot be cured. And the reason I bring this up is because about a year ago, year or two ago, there was this big, huge media push and that just all this media recognition of Iceland and how they have almost no children with Down syndrome and they have cured Down syndrome. Folks, they did not cure Down syndrome. They abort 90% of their babies with Down syndrome. That is not a cure. You cannot cure Down syndrome in our current uh, technological state. Um, the only cure for Down syndrome is noticing the embryo in the first couple of divisions has a 21st chromosome somewhere or even a portion of that 21st chromosome and manipulating it to where it divides correctly. We don't have that capability yet. Um, one day we might, but right now we don't. Um, so there is no cure for Down syndrome. It is not a disease that you get. It is not something that you cause in 99.9999% of the cases. So Iceland has two to three babies born with Down syndrome every year. It's not because they're the unlucky few who weren't cured. No, it's the few that the parents fought to keep. Um, news articles were pushing about how Iceland is so good about their prenatal genetic testing and then aborting unwanted babies. Um, I wanted my baby. <laughs> um, granted, I didn't know that my baby had Down syndrome uh, until after he was born, but that wouldn't have changed anything for us. We still would have had our child. Um, regardless of what ensued afterwards. And I think a lot of people would make that choice, or at least they would <laughs> not too long ago. So I just wanted to make that clear um, because that goes into our next part of this topic is Down syndrome cannot be cured. It is not a disease. They don't have um, an illness. Uh, they are born with an extra chromosome. That is it, or a portion of an extra chromosome. There are tons of genetic anomalies out there and Down syndrome is just probably the most common. So you can't eradicate it, you can't cure it. So what is Down syndrome is the real question. So sometime during early development, typically one of the first divisions that the embryo makes, a portion of the 21st chromosome or the entire 21st chromosome is copied extra. So what does that look like? So each human cell, a normal human cell, has 23 pairs of chromosomes, 46 individual chromosomes, 23 from the mother, 23 from the father. And the sperm and the um, embryo, or the egg, get together and they form the embryo. And then they divide, and they divide and specialize out into cells. Well, in that first division, typically the division isn't done right. Something happens, and that 21st chromosome is copied an extra time. And so there are three 21st chromosomes. That is a type of Down syndrome called non-disjunction. That means there are three complete copies of the 21st chromosome in every cell of the person's body. 
Now that's just one of the three types of, of Down syndrome that you can have. The second is a translocation where a portion of the 21st chromosome has uh, attached to another chromosome and it looks like there are only two chromosomes in there when in fact there's actually three but that third part's attached to another chromosome. And so when you look at the cell there's 46 pairs there but there's a piece of the 21st chromosome attached to another one and thus you get the Down syndrome characteristics. And then the final type is mosaic Down syndrome. Mosaic Down syndrome is Down syndrome where not all cells of the body have that 21st, extra 21st chromosome. And so that's the rarest form of Down syndrome. A vast majority of Down syndrome are the non-disjunction. Now let's be clear, non-disjunction is completely genetic an anomaly. And the best way I can describe this is every day in your body, your cells divide and they replicate in order for you to survive. Without that replication, you die. And our genetic um, makeup is just so fine-tuned that when it spots an anomaly in your cells, it kills that cell, especially if it's something that shouldn't be there. Um, sometimes it doesn't, and that's where you get cancer um, in some forms. So... That's what happens similarly in, in this Down syndrome case where something happened and the 21st chromosome was duplicated more than it should have been. And so there are three um, chromosomes that there's nothing that can stop that. There's nothing that you did when you had your baby that caused that. It's not the same thing as um, fetal alcohol syndrome. That is absolutely caused by a mother consuming alcohol during pregnancy and during the development of that embryo. Down syndrome is not the same thing. Now they may share similar characteristics, but it is not because of something you as a parent did. It is not something that you or your husband could have prevented. I want to stress that so many times because so many people think when they first have their child with Down syndrome, what did I do? Did I do something wrong? I know I asked myself that question. I just didn't know all these answers. And no, I didn't. My son has no disjunction. He, there's nothing genetic from me or Natalie that caused him to have Down syndrome. It was just one of those rare incidents where it happened. <coughs> and I'm sorry for the coughing, y'all. We've got a little bit of a cold running through our house. So there is one instance, and it's 1% of all children who are born with Down syndrome. So it is an astronomically low percentage of all births whenever you take the worldwide percentage of births. Um, but it is a inherited Down syndrome. And, and what I mean by that is a mother has 20, the proper amount of chromosomes, but maybe one of her chromosomes is attached to another, and so she has one 21st chromosome that is attached to another. Well, they may duplicate inappropriately in the embryonic cell, and in that case there is an, an inherited component to that. And it's like 1% of all Down syndrome cases. And so that's very rare that that happens. Most of the time when a child is born with Down syndrome, there will be some genetic testing on the mother and the father um, if it is a not it is not the non-disjunction. In other words, if it's a translocation, there may be some genetic testing that they do on mom or dad or both. I know, um, Nellie, did they want to do genetic testing on us? Um, I don't think they did because Ethan had non-disjunction. Right, I don't think they had to because of that. So, mm -hmm. just to kind of recap that, non-disjunction is there are three complete copies 
of the 21st chromosome. Translocation is a type of Down syndrome where part of the 21st chromosome, the extra part, is attached to another chromosome. It doesn't have to be the whole 21st chromosome to exhibit the characteristics of Down syndrome. Now, so what is Down syndrome? A syndrome is not a disease. It is simply a grouping of characteristics that present themselves in in a person so um for example the eye features in in down syndrome where every child with down syndrome almost looks like they could be a brother to another or sister to every other child with down syndrome they have the almond eye almond shaped eyes um, they'll have a plantar crease um, that is specific to down syndrome they have really low muscle tone and a lot of people think that these children are doomed to mental retardation. Um, that's not 100% accurate. There's terms of low functioning, high functioning. You cannot label a baby who has Down syndrome as high functioning or low functioning. You really can't label any person with Down syndrome as high functioning or low functioning because each person grows and develops and meets their milestones at their own time frame. For example, some kids with Down syndrome don't walk until they're five years old. I mean, that's a very common thing. Um, some kids with Down syndrome don't ever talk, but they can take care of themselves. There are a plethora of options and ranges in which these children can develop into the adults that they're going to be. So, I would hesitate to say any child with Down syndrome is going to be high-functioning, low-functioning. For example, our son right now, he can walk. He can feed himself. He's not potty trained. He's five. He'll be six this summer. We've worked on it. He just doesn't have that cueing in his mind that, hey, I need to poop. Let me tell Dad so I can go sit on the potty. Um, but there's nothing that tells me that, hey, one day he might be able to do these things. He might, but right now he can't. And so we can't judge where he's going to fall on that spectrum at this point in time. So what we kind of want to talk about now is just some of the myths um, and facts that may surround Down syndrome. I know growing up, I didn't know anyone with Down syndrome. It's actually a really common uh, occurrence. It's the most common uh, birth anomaly. Um what we, when Allie and I found out whenever she had Ethan was um, one in 2,000 births and the ages from, I believe it's 20 to 30, are Down syndrome babies. That's a lot of babies, if you think about it. That is a whole bunch of kids born every year with Down syndrome, two young parents. And um, one of the big, um, and I'm sorry, now if I'm stealing one of your myths here, uh, but one of the big myths that I always uh, teach my nursing students um, when I have them is, um, you know, who has the most kids with Down syndrome? What age group do you think? Is it the 20 to 30, 30 to 40 range? Or I, I guess I break it down even more. I do 20 to 30, 30 to 35, or 35 to 45. And most people say 35 to 45. And while, yes, they have a much higher percentage chance, like one in 35 babies born to women of the age range 35 to 45 are children with down syndrome they however make up a small minority of the amount of babies that are born and so more babies are born to the age group 20 to 30 with down syndrome than women who are 35 to 45 
just by sheer number of babies born in the age group 20 to 30. So that's one of the big myths is we think Down syndrome, older parents. Um, my parents have been mistaken as Ethan's actual parents um, oh, really? many times. <laughs> yeah, and I think I've even heard uh, my wife's family mother and father be referred to as Ethan's parents as well. So mm. so don't assume <laughs> that someone's kid is actually due to the grandparents' uh, kid. So that's one big myth that we have. Um, so I'm, I'm going to hand over the mic to my wife because I've been blathering on for 15 minutes. <laughs> okay, so yeah, some more myths. Um, the life expectancy. So I knew just a few basic things from college biology class about Down syndrome. We might have talked about it in some of our... I didn't do the special ed track, but I did early childhood education. And then we had at least one class about special education law and stuff like that. So, I knew they generally didn't live as long, but I knew more of some of the older information of thinking about them dying in young adulthood or something like that. And yes, that used to be true, largely due to the fact that half of people, babies, born with Down syndrome have heart defects and not all of them require surgery. Sometimes it's little holes that close up within the first year. Our son had to have open heart surgery. Um... But so that's some of it is advanced. Well, that's a lot of it is medical advancement and the known to treat some of these things appropriately, like, you know, hypothyroidism, hyperthyroidism, and just getting good medical care and having them at home with families instead of them growing up as young adults in institutions and just, you know, not getting as much attention and care. So now it's more like ages 65 and older now so i'm thinking that it might even get to be an average of older for life expectancy once our son's a little older but that was you know when he was born that's how they're the ones who are already into their 60s they're really living longer now which is good so Mm -hmm. that was the first thing that hit me like a ton of bricks when we were told about his possible diagnosis i mean no they hadn't done testing yet but because of some telltale signs like he was spitting up a lot, and they, the doctor thought, oh, he might have a duodenal atresia. Like, his intestines weren't connected, so the food wasn't going anywhere. It was just coming back up, um, which I don't even know of many kids with Down syndrome with that. Poor Ethan just kind of hit the jackpot on some of the not-as-pleasant things that go along with Down syndrome. Just to interject there, about 50% of kids with Down syndrome have heart defects. Um, yeah, that's what I'm saying. And a smaller percentage, I think it's closer to one-third, have additional um, defects such as uh, the duodenal atresia. It, but one defect that's very common amongst all kids with Down syndrome is a, what's called a Meckel's diverticulum. And that's just an adhesion of the intestines to the abdominal wall in some degree. So um, anyways, that's just some extra information for you guys there. But. Yeah, so since the doctor noticed that, that's kind of why he was able to go ahead and say, oh, I kind of think, like, kind of thinking 50-50, well, at first he said 50-50, just looking at his features. Mm-hmm. Um, like, later some pointed out to me, I was really tired, so I didn't notice at first. But then we were kind of just looking at him, and so he kind of just looked like a little bit extra skin on the back of his neck. I mean, it's kind of hard to describe that. But basically, just it looked a little bit different than other newborns. Next, than I've looked at, I suppose. 
But then when he noticed about the duodenal atresia, um, that's when he was saying, thought that would warrant. And that is one. The first thing I thought is, boom, life expectancy. And that was something that had I been better educated about it, I probably wouldn't have gotten quite that upset because it's kind of hard for your baby to come out and think you're being told that your kid's not going to live very long, which they didn't say, but that's what I thought. So that was my myth. So there's that one. Um, Another myth is... Oh, I want to interject on this one as well. One of the other big reasons why um, kids with Down syndrome live longer is, uh, like Natalie was saying, there are more... Um, medical treatments for them, but doctors are actually doing those medical treatments more. Um, so probably 50 years, 60 years ago, our son may not have even made it out of the hospital. I don't even think it would have been an option for us to have the surgery that he had then um, to fix his mm-hmm. duodenal atresia. So um, that's another big change is um, the advocacy for these kids to get the treatments that they need to get is mm-hmm. one of the big things that have also contributed to um, longer life expectancies. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so another myth is you can tell by how a baby or how an adult with Down syndrome looks just by their facial features. Um, how much they're going to talk, how high their IQ is going to be, and, that's, and how much they will understand, that sort of thing. But that is not true. There's just... There's absolutely nothing about the way someone looks. Like maybe someone thinks the Down syndrome features are more pronounced. Sometimes I'm not even sure what people would mean by that. Or, you know, maybe one of them has a more pronounced tongue thrust, but that's just one person I've heard said she's never seen her kid thrust her tongue out. I mean, that's just really has absolutely nothing to do with what their success will be in communicating and their perceived IQ, I say perceived because it's really kind of hard um, to know what's it. How do you know what someone knows? They talk to you about it. Well, if someone has speech delays, it doesn't mean they don't know something. Um, I've learned to find a lot of ways to notice how Ethan and other kids, too, how to appreciate and notice what they know and what they understand um, in ways that you have to kind of pay closer attention to notice how bright they are because they might not say it, but you can notice what they pick up on mm-hmm. by some nonverbal things. That yeah, and that's an excellent point. Um, a lot of the assessments that are done on these kids are based on what can the observer see the kid do. Well, mom and dad can see them do a heck of a lot more than what the observer is going to see them do. Mm-hmm. And we know that they, he has a higher IQ than what they rate him at. Unfortunately, you actually want some of those evaluations to look really bad and to sound really, really bad um, because that's actually how you get some of the support you need for these kids. Kind of a random tangent there, but it kind of made me think of that. So don't just look at someone and say, hmm, they're pretty low functioning when in fact they might actually understand far more um, than what you think they do. And that's one thing we have to also keep in mind with our son when we're talking is he understands a lot. Um, he just cannot communicate to us everything that he understands. But you can tell that he's understanding what you're saying because, you know, two years ago we would say, hey, can you go get me that? And he would just look at you, not do anything. But now I say, hey, go get daddy that towel, and he'll go get it and bring it to me. So he may not say a word in this transition, but he actually can do it. So, again, just like my wife said, don't judge a book by its cover. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and he was even doing a lot of multiple step direction things, which his PT pointed out. Like, yeah, he can do that. A lot of typical kids his age can't do that very well. So, yeah. Um, another one is that a myth is that the amount of effort from the parents and teachers is directly equal to the outcome um, of speech of other progress. So, basically, oh, well... This kid over here with Down syndrome, he seems kind of advanced. Like he's saying um, lots of phrases and he's even starting to do some sentences at age four and five, but this other one isn't. So that must be, this kid must have the really involved parents. And I can see as a, you know, former student teacher and daycare worker how you might think that maybe sometimes that's true with typical kids. It is a lot harder to say that is true um, of a kid in the Down syndrome community because like Ryan said, not just because of environmental factors, but just the way it is, it, there is such a vast range in Down syndrome of abilities and also in their life, it's not always this very linear progression. Um, so like Ethan really blossomed using American Sign Language. We taught him that because a lot of people do that to help uh, with the speech delays. It helps a lot of kids with Down syndrome. He still signs and sometimes will say word and sign. Anyways, but it, so there was so much progress and you think, oh, here we go. He's going to keep on tracking like that. Well, it's not always like that. It's been kind of plateau for a while. So now we're trying out this communication device with him where he presses it and says the word and trying to figure all that out. Um, and getting some help from some really good therapists helping with us with that. But yeah, and it can be kind of frustrating because you can put in a lot of effort and feel like there's not much that comes out of it. So yeah, if you see a kid who's really excelling, I mean, it, I'm sure they probably do have great parents, but the ones that are not walking yet at three or even four, that has, that may have nothing to do with um, how much effort was put in. There could be lots of effort put in and they just don't always respond at the same time. And it's not always motivation. There's just so many factors that go into it that can make these things challenging for them. So that's one myth. And along with that, I'll say, um, not that I'm going to get really upset if people share these sorts of things because it's great. I love seeing, you know, those really, what do you call it, just kind of like a whiz kid, a whiz kid with Down syndrome who can do all this stuff or like young adults who are making this really eloquent speech. And that's really encouraging. I'd say it's probably a little more encouraging if your kid is still a baby and you're looking at all the possibilities, but if you're kind of going through a hard time with your kid struggling through some things, sometimes there's only so many of those I like to watch because it's just not a, you know, all, every kid, just like every typical kid can't be a whiz kid. Every kid with Down syndrome, I'm sorry. I mean, they're just not all going to get to that point. Now, they may have some other areas that they really excel in. Um, but, yeah, so sometimes, you know, be mindful of that, that it's not always like, oh, I need to push my friend to get her kid to do more because look at what this kid can do. Look at this video. Look at, you know, you can share those, but at the same time realize that the effort they put in is not always going to equal your kid turning into a whiz kid with Down syndrome. So, do you have any thoughts, what thoughts on that one? Or? Mm -mm. Okay. Um, let's see, what else? 
Um, I think people hear about this one a lot, and hopefully it'll be obvious. I don't think it is, though. But kids, people with Down syndrome, they're not always happy. They have a reputation for being really happy, and I think they probably have a little bit more relaxed view on things, maybe. <laughs> but that's it's just not always true. I'm laughing over here because, case in point, this past week our son has spent every evening from about 6 p.m. till about 8 p.m. literally screeching and screaming because <laughs> he wants to watch his iPad and he doesn't want to not watch his iPad. He will literally watch the same thing on his iPad that is on the TV but he would rather it be on his iPad. So, no. They are typical people. They are typical kids. And they will throw a fit, kick and scream, and sometimes try and bite you just like any other kid would. Oh, my gosh. Did he try to bite you this week? No. Oh. I'm just saying. Yeah. They're, they're typical kids. They may have slow, meaty milestones, but they're still a kid. And they're still going to do what kids do. And that's uh, throw a good tantrum when they don't get what they want. Yeah. Um, yeah, and some of them, um, you know, they're known for being really social, but, but some kids with Down syndrome have some sensory sensitivities, and they don't like a whole lot of noise, crowd noise, and some of them are, huh. you know, they're anxious enough that some of them, you know, might even take a little anxiety medicine, like a lot of us typical people need some anxiety medicine sometimes, so I mean... It's definitely not always they're all this certain personality or something. They're different, each different people, individuals. And just like typical children and typical people, uh, their personalities change over time. When my son was one, his first birthday party, we threw a huge celebration. He had been, quite honestly, we are very fortunate that he survived, um, which we'll get into the details of what happened. Suffice it to say, he had flu and was very, very sick. Um, but we'll cover that in a future podcast. Um, however, um, we threw this huge celebration for his first year party because we were just so thrilled. We actually made it to a year and he was not having it. He had lots of anxiety, just did not want to be around all these people. People weren't being loud. They just were talking and carry, you know, carrying on conversations, but it was too loud for him. Now he doesn't give a anything he doesn't care he just he just will just run around throwing a ball up in the air for hours on end so he doesn't care about social noise uh, he doesn't really have that social anxiety anymore mm-hmm. um which is you know typical you know kids grow and they become less scared of social interactions and the noise that comes along with that and the final thing we really wanted to kind of talk about is the resources that may be available um these are not nationwide, so look into what's available through your Medicaid, Medicare programs in your state. Contact a social worker at your state's hosp- uh, children's hospital uh, because they will have a wide range of um, resources that you can utilize. Right, so, and if, if, you, if your state does not have a children's hospital, um, DHS office. Yes. That's a good question. I'm curious if there is a state without a children's hospital. I think there are several without it because people online talk about they drive to whatever. Oh, you're kidding. I think. I don't know. It's not just because their children's hospital is bad? That's that's neither here nor there. I don't know. Well, and then also just if you're not already having to go to the hospital a lot, you could just go to DHS. I don't know. 
Yeah, that's true. Anyways, that doesn't really well, matter. It's closer but... driving distance, anyways. So, anyways, so resources, what's available? So, I know in Arkansas, we have some of the best support for children with special needs. And it's not just children with Down syndrome. If your child has a debilitating disorder or a diagnosis that is going to affect them until they are 18 years old, they instantly qualify for a program called TEFRA. I believe that's T-E-F-R-A. Um, it is a subsidy of Medicare. And so what that does is it acts as a secondary insurance. You do have to pay an insurance premium, but it is based on your income. So what does that mean? It means that if you have a primary insurance, so you're working and you have insurance for your kids, you can apply for TEFRA. And TEFRA will cover 100% of your bills for your child with special needs that your primary insurance does not cover. I cannot express how huge this is for people with kids with special needs. There are a bazillion um, appointments. So let me just kind of share with you this past week. Last week, we had a cardiology follow-up at Arkansas Children's Hospital. We had to do an echo. That echo alone would have cost us two or $300 out of our own pocket. That's one. He's had at least one a year since he was born. If he was younger, so about ages one to three, he had one every six months. That adds up very quickly, not to mention the copay for the doctor's office. So that was the first visit. We also had a dentist appointment after that, and we also had a pulmonary appointment as well. We also were supposed to go have a video swallow study, basically look to see if he can swallow liquids without thickening it, followed up with an ear, nose, and throat specialist visit after that. And then we have endocrinology appointment, and then we have a neurosurgery appointment. And all of these are very common appointments that every kid with Down syndrome gets, especially if they have cardiac problems. Every kid with Down syndrome gets an x-ray of their neck because they have a very high chance of having weaknesses between the um, vertebrae in their neck that could, if jumping on trampoline or playing a jarring sport like football, could paralyze them if they are hit in just the right way. It doesn't even have to be a major hit. Um, like I said, jumping on the trampoline can cause it. Um, our son actually has that, and so he's not allowed to jump on bounce houses or trampolines or anything like that. So all those appointments, that's not uh, for you guys to say, oh, poor pitiful Ryan and Natalie. No, my point in telling you that is the bills for these visits are astronomical. So every echo that we get, Someone has to interpret that echo. They charge our insurance for that. And what our insurance doesn't cover, they send to the families to pay for that bill. Um, every x-ray he has, not only do we have to pay for the x-ray, we also have to pay for the radiology appoint, um, radiologist that reads that x-ray. If he's in the hospital, we have to pay the hospital bill. We have to pay the attending bill. We have to pay the um, intensivist bill. Any x-rays he gets, guess what? We have to pay the radiologist bill as well. Those all add up to hundreds and thousands of dollars that you had to pay that you suddenly don't have to because of Tefra. I cannot sing the praises of this program enough. This program is huge. And I just, any state that doesn't have something like this, I beg their legislators to do something. Yes, it's expensive, but oh my goodness, the peace of mind we have with this is amazing. Our son has spent four and a half months as a patient in Arkansas Children's Hospital, four and a half months inpatient. 
Several of that has been in the ICU. Several of that's just been on the floor. Those doctor bills would put us under if we actually had to pay them. I'm sure the hospital would work it out with us to where we could actually afford to pay them until the day we die. <laughs> unfortunately, or not unfortunately, but fortunately, we don't have to do that. So that's amazing. That's a huge resource. So if you're in Arkansas, check out TEFRA. Arkansas Children's Hospital Social Workers are happy to help you with anything you need. Some of these application processes are very lengthy and very difficult. Another program is the Medicaid Waiver Program, and that kicks in after your child turns 18 and access their insurance from the time they're 18 until um, they pass away. The waiting list is like 18 years. It's, It's an incredible Um, amount of time that you have your kid on this waiting list so put your kid on the waiting list the moment they're born if you can because it might not be till they're 24 that they actually get this insurance thankfully you know with the way laws are now primary insurance will cover your children until they're 24 Um, so those are two uh, I think it's 24 maybe 26 now I don't remember but that's neither here nor there it's supposed to be getting shorter but I know (laughs) I did Ethan's application for Medicaid waiver when he was one, and he'll be six in July, and he's still not off the waiting list. So, it'll, yeah, get on there ASAP. So, Arkansans, this is another application that you will do it wrong if you try and do it yourself. Find help to do it. Again, Arkansas Children's Hospital social workers are going to be a huge resource for you. And my wife's actually about to talk about some um, social networking groups that will also be very valuable resources for you um, in raising your child. The last thing I want to talk about as far as resources um, available to you, if you have a primary insurance in Arkansas and you have a secondary Medicaid Medicare insurance for your child, you can apply for a program called RHIP. I think it's A-R-H-I-P-P. Yeah. Um, if you just Google RHIP, it's like the first link you pick up. Um, I'll try and add it into the uh, description. Um, but they will pay you back your primary insurance as an incentive to keep your primary insurance. Um, and it's not like a cash cow. It's not to give you money just so that you have money to spend. It has been our saving grace. Uh, right now we don't currently use it, um, but we have used it for many years. For many years, Natalie couldn't work because it was too hard to have um, Ethan in daycare it was actually a danger of just losing him to an illness by having him in a daycare and so um, this insurance provided us just enough finances that we could squeak by on me working granted i had to work a lot but we could still make it and make ends meet so if you're in arkansan and you have primary insurance and you also have medicaid for your child look at our hip it will be a huge blessing for you and your family so I'm going to hand it over to Natalie now to talk about uh, social networking. Okay, so I'm going to start with talking about the more national and international social networking and then narrow it down um, to our local area, Central Arkansas. Um, so nationally, there is the well-known National Down Syndrome Society, NDSS. They're pretty well known for their buddy walks, and they just have a lot of good information on their website. Um, and then there's IDSC, International Down Syndrome Coalition, um, and they're a pro-life Down Syndrome um, organization. And then National Down Syndrome Congress, which is a national organization with Down Syndrome advocates who are adults with Down Syndrome are included in that. 
And then within the IDSC that I was talking about a moment ago, they have um, some subgroups for age groups like preschool, school age, babies and toddlers on Facebook. So that's pretty useful. And also on Facebook is the Down Syndrome Diagnosis Network. And not always, but since a lot of times it's a lot of mothers who get on, and it's referred to as DSDN Rockin' Moms, as in, you know, rockin' the extra chromosome. And then they have a lot of subgroups, such as birth year, um, which is cool because your kids are all going to kindergarten at the same time and have different things. And then there's a medically complex group. So <clears throat> tell everybody how the social networking groups have helped you and helped us with Ethan's care and how it's a good resource for you? Um, well, basically, you don't necessarily meet a whole lot of people just in your jobs or at your church who might also have a kid with Down syndrome. You might, which would be awesome, but these are ways that if you're not having an event currently or you want to talk to someone who you might see in an event later, you can ask um, a, a question that's more about parenting a kid with Down syndrome rather than just the basic stuff about teething, which honestly there's some things about teething that are done in a different order with Down syndrome. So it's just nice to have that sounding board or just to vent some frustrations, ask questions just for anything. Maybe find out about some resources you didn't know about in your area. Find out who is a good doctor for a kid with Down syndrome, that kind of thing. Um, and then so for the more local ones of the central Arkansas on Facebook, there's Buddy Talk, and they have some events they do as well. And then Arkansas Down Syndrome Network, and I know that one you can kind of search if it's, you know, maybe someone who doesn't know anyone yet, search and find it and get added to that one. And they also have some events. Um, and then there's the Down Syndrome Advancement Coalition of Arkansas, and that is kind of like an overarching thing to connect people with all these different things um, and then there's the Arkansas Down Syndrome Association and they have a lot, a lot of events they do and kind of work with the media when there are things going on um, politically or medically with Down Syndrome in Arkansas and there's also going to be a Gigi's Playhouse come which isn't social media although everyone all these organizations have social media um, that one is just a place that's going to be where people can learn things like cooking, get tutoring help, and Gigi's is an, that's an international thing, but the local one I'm talking about is going to be in Little Rock, so that's kind of in the works for next year. Um, and I think that pretty much covers it. Can you think of any others, Ryan? I don't believe so. Okay. And a show you could watch, uh, Born This Way, has young adults with Down Syndrome, um, with different things going on in their life. And so I've watched a few episodes of that, and it's really neat to see the perspective from the parents and the young adults. So those are some things that can kind of help you with your, your journey with your kid with Down syndrome I think would be useful. Well, we hope this has been a somewhat informative episode for you guys as far as Down syndrome is concerned. Please, if you have any questions or concerns or comments that you want to ask us, Please feel free to contact us. Our email is better than expected321 at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Ryan. And Natalie. Thank you for listening to the Better Than Expected podcast.